Welcome everyone to the Deep Dive, the podcast that skips small talk and goes straight for the concepts that shape our thinking and behavior. In this podcast, cold expertise is defenestrated as warm philosophy is enthroned in an attempt to explore the field in which we're all scientists looking for answers, living well. Hello world, welcome to another episode of The Deep Dive with Eyal Shai. I'm joined today by Laura Lewis-Barr. Hi, Laura. Hey, good to see <laughs> Thanks you. Thanks for coming on. It's good to see you. Um, and without further ado, I'd really love to hear from you. What is an idea that has helped you or has been helping you live well? An idea that's been helping me live well. Well, wow, <laughs> I should have been prepared for this question. Um, I think gratitude, of course, helps me live well and being grateful for all that I have. I feel like I have so much in this day and age. Um, and, and then taking a lot of time for silence helps me live well. Yeah, that's great. Um, I know that um, you've been on quite the parallel journey journey to mine, um, at least in the past couple of years of really uh, diving into something new and also almost uh, finding a calling or following a calling and then finding yourself in a, in a good position. So I'm super interested in, in that particular um, part of your overall journey of living well. And um, yeah, I'd really like to, to hear from you Um, a little bit about uh, what led you uh, to doing what you do today and then what is kind of your main takeaway from uh, or what you've found in making um, stop-motion films and adapting fairy tales, is that fair to say? Yeah, that's been my focus, a great deal of my focus. So I, I have been doing theater since I was a child and then I got my degree and was teaching and directing. Uh, then I had the lucky occasion that one of my plays was made into a film and that was in 2010 something. And that blew my mind because I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> this thing now lasts forever doesn't end when the play ends closing night and I was really hooked so I bought a camera a secondhand but decent camera and I wanted to learn it so I decided to play with some dolls and use the camera to learn the camera then I was blown away by the joy of stop-motion And then the pandemic hit and there I was in my basement learning the camera, learning stop motion. And the final piece was I've been studying Jungian psychology most of my life too as a parallel path. And they really love fairy tales. The Jungians love that, love fairy tales. Fairy tales were finding myself perfectly suited for stop motion with the dolls. And so all of parts of my life started coming together. 
Yeah, it sounds amazing because I wasn't as well prepared as you were because it's just you you had just found an activity that you can do in your basement just coming into two years <laughs> of isolation. That's like amazing. And then just yeah. the fact that you uh, just accidentally kind of stumbled on a form of art that you haven't done before and and wasn't even looking for, right? It sounds like. Right. No, I assumed I was going to do live action, um, but stop motion, working alone, working with dolls somehow fits my personality better. That's amazing. And I know that you've, you've spoken before in other places about um, the healing power of fairy tales. And that's something that I was really interested in because i think usually fairy tales or inner minds is just something you tell children like maybe they have a a moral so obviously you know don't speak to wolves um and stuff like that but healing is not what um usually comes to mind immediately and i'm really interested how what what the connection there how how you made it and what stood out for you there well I've been studying, so I know that therapists use tales to help clients get in touch with deep themes in their lives. And then I personally am experiencing that as I dive into tales. And there's also been research that I've been reading where they're talking about resilience as being one of the things that people can experience through the trials of the hero in a in a fairy tale so i think the hero's journey of a fairy tale sort of matches psychologically what we go through as we're trying to live an authentic life hmm yeah that's really interesting would you mind sharing any kind of example from your own life where that is maybe even in retrospect but a point where you could transfer this understanding from a fairy tale into um, something personal of either perseverance sure. or resilience um, or anything sure. like that? Sure. So there's a Hans, Hans Christian Andersen story that many of us might know called uh, The Little Match Girl. The Little Match Girl is very, very poor. And all she really has are, is a matches to sell. She, um, in the original story, it's very cold. It's Christmas Day. She um, is orphaned. She's alone. And she finds herself, she starts to light the candle because she wants to get warm. She w looks at the candle and she goes into daydreams as she's with the candlelight. She goes into these fantastic dreams of, food and family and she does that like three times or something like that and then she doesn't have any more matches so now she's truly destitute uh hans christian anderson puts a kind of a a fantasy ending but to me what the dream what the I said dream, which is interesting because dreams and fairy tales are very close, I think. But what this tale is about and what I felt in my heart about it, it's about when we have a poverty part of our psychology, 
we can be prone. I was prone to go into a fantasy about what could be. Mm. Um, I was really hungry for certain types of community. I was so hungry for that community that I would go into a fantasy about what it could be instead of recognizing, first of all, my hunger and my poverty in it and um, the fact that I didn't have it. And, and that was, an, I, I don't know if you've had this experience, Eyal, when um, you do a dream or a movie or anything and you have that aha moment where you see its connection to your life. Mm. It's a trippy moment to go, yes. what, what, wait a minute, I am the little match girl right now. I am losing my resources through fantasy instead of dealing with the, the poverty of my spirit in this moment. Wow. Yeah, that's fascinating. So is the, is the poverty from your experience, is it, is it exactly the, the thing we're dreaming about? And what would be uh, the, the correct way to go about it in terms of, of us looking at ourselves with, uh, uh, with, with sobriety and kind of analyzing the situation? Right. For everything I read, learn, experience myself comes to the same thing that, that there is a certain grieving that is uh, wholesome. It's not neurotic spinning, but it's a wholesome grieving that leads toward a transformation. But I need to feel the grief of what I don't have, what I wish for, and really be real about it. That's what I keep learning. And fairy tales um, also talk about the grieving process and staying with it. There's a fairy tale that I may do soon called Finnest the Bright Falcon. And in it, the heroine is searching for something she's lost and she goes through three pairs of iron shoes. She walks through three pairs of iron shoes. What an amazing metaphor for a long, long journey. Yeah, and she eats beautiful. iron bread because bread to us might taste like iron when we're grieving. It's these fairy tales are very, very deep. Yeah, that's first of all, it sounds like most of us have not dug down very deep into the world of fairy tales, right? I could probably name five or six or, or 10 if I thought about it. But I'm sure, like, how many do you think you've encountered at this point? I assume they are, they are in the thousands, right? If you go around the world and look into different cultures. Oh, yeah. I, I wouldn't even know where to... Because, yeah, they're, they're, they go back thousands of years, like you say. So there's a lot of themes that repeat. But I tell you, Twitter has really helped me in this because... Actually, today is Fairy Tale Tuesday on Twitter, and if you use that hashtag, you'll see people from all over the world posting on a theme. And I've learned so many more fairy tales and themes. Um, I'm finding now when I travel or when I I go to I, I saw Shakespeare recently, and I was just getting the mythological themes more because mm. I'm living in them more now than I used to. Yeah, so I'm interested if, if you have like a heightened sensitivity to fairy tales and uh, maybe more an eye of an expert so that you think you could 
extract something more easily from them and ap apply to your own life because it sounds like I would probably miss a lot of these uh, messages that you're talking about uh, from fairy tales. I'm like very new to this, as new as new as this conversation that's just happening. Absolutely. I think it's a skill like any other. And it's very similar, I think, to dream work. And I think humility, I have to embrace a lot of humility, especially when working with dreams, because these images are beyond me. But as I play with them and stay with them, I start to have I think I've only had a real aha twice <laughs> with a fairy tale. Maybe I'll get some more. But that moment of, whoa, wait a minute, that's me. Yeah, that's great. And what about like if we were to, to connect it to any one or both uh, concepts that you mentioned at the beginning that are ideas that have helped you live well, uh, where, do, where do you think your um, current work meets those in terms of is it i imagine that there is silence on the set when you're filming this um <laughs> is that is that coincidental or is it fair to connect the two? Oh wow what a great so when i um was in graduate school i was studying static postures of um asia mostly india static um, postures that actors took in these ancient ritual performances like um, uh, Katakali or, um, or Japanese no. And I'm bringing that up because the si silence, stillness, I didn't connect that. That was my master's thesis and that's what the dolls are. And so there is something about stillness and silence that I think prompts me to feel deeper into whatever I'm working on. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's very mysterious. Uh, and, yes. and I think the other thing that's mysterious is half the time, I'm not even aware of what I'm creating until later. That and means, that's really- That means you're a true artist, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it also means that the unconscious is maybe taking the lead, which, wow, if I can make, if I can allow that, that's huge. Yeah. And do you, so do, do you find that you um, going and approaching uh, a work of yours, do you already know what you model it after? Or is it uh, complete uh, serendipity and you would be just playing around with positioning things and trying things out? So my background directing live theater, I think, informs how I think about staging. But um, because I'm self-taught, I think a lot of my greatest discoveries have happened through failure and, <laughs> and terrible mistakes and, and just learning how to fix things in post. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, I'm getting, I'm learning and I'm getting better and it's getting easier. And the the, the line, I, I'm assuming this is true in your podcasting probably, that um, the workflow gets leaner and cleaner and faster. Yes, that's, that I imagine is the nicest part of any kind of creative endeavor is when things settle down and you have a pretty good idea that 
whatever you set out to do is achievable and then you already get a sense of what it takes. And I guess that to some degree, we also need to shake ourselves out of it at some point and kind of experiment with um, new additions because I think that any creative should have their own R&D um, kind of um, department in their own mind, like also testing out new things that could be incorporated, right? Yeah, well, and, and I find that the writer me doesn't really take into account the director me. The writer me is like, you figure it out. And the director me is like, what, how do I do this? So that's been really interesting to keep those separate. Right, yeah. And how, uh, what about like in terms of the, the process that you've been going through um, doing these things, is it all that you had hoped for? in terms of pursuing um, a creative pursuit that um, you've just been, um, also we should say, recognized as somebody who does it well, right? Which is nice. And I'm also interested um, as a creative myself, what, what it feels like to be in that position. Well, I think my moods or my experience of myself as an artist really fluctuates. If I get a, if I get a win from a film festival, I'm like thrilled beyond belief. And then I get a lot of rejections and I start to lose faith. Um, I'm still really new at it, as you've said. So um, I, I, I do lose faith. And I think, I think I'm trying to figure out sometimes how these can serve. Like I've been really wanting, so I've been invited by the Jung Center of Maine, state of Maine, to bring my films to one of their events because they're interested in analyzing them because they know that I come from that sort of psychological um, place and I'm, oh, today's Carl Jung's birthday. So I'm uh, very devoted happy birthday, to Carl Jung. Happy, happy birthday, Carl, um, Dr. Jung. Um, anyway, I, uh, I, I'm still, I think my greatest hope is that these films can be of service or, you know, whatever that means, laughter for people or, or studying them to explore their own, uh, inner world. Um, I, so I have to get the word out because I'm still, you know, not very known. Yeah. Well, it's, um, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, that no matter the, the amount, no matter the, the number of accolades, I guess that people kind of are able to collect doing what they love doing and what they're passionate about that really, um, almost means nothing when it comes to the next thing, right? And wishing to see if, if that thing will do just as well or not. It's it's very hard to actually uh rest on the on the lower leaves and on or the wreath. And yeah, it's 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 a I think it's a good reminder for anybody doing something like that, thinking that you can just pull it off and be happy. I mean I can't imagine things that are uh more frustrating than being a one-hit wonder singer, for example, who really wanted to to be a serious artist, and then it happens once and turns out to be 
ephemeral, right? And even even if you're a serial winner of things, I guess that never really quiets down, right? Right. I think you're so right. And I think it is the the path of the artist. If 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 I'm following my muse, I am constantly being asked to do what I'm afraid of and or what I'm confused by or what um uh, yeah, those two things, I guess, of fear and confusion. <laughs> yeah. And uh, does that also relate to what you mentioned, uh, gratitude, in the sense that maybe we need to remember these things and make sure that at the moment when we are um, riding the wave, are being acknowledged or recognized? Uh, are there, because I always think there needs to be. Um, some there need to be some measures that are taken in important moments in our life to make them more um, accessible, more alive later on down the road. And I feel like um, noting down, you know, how grateful I am for a peak experience is something that's very, very important to um, take down, take with you down the road. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know that I can take it with me exactly. I guess I feel like I'm living more in the moment. And I think for many years I was on the work treadmill and COVID killed my day job. And now I'm slowly getting back to it. But I think my biggest gratitude is that I get to be, I have time for the art, which was always, you know, like so many people, I kind of did it in my spare time. And now it's like almost full time. So that's, I'll always be grateful for that day to day to day. Yeah, that's so true. Um, yeah, I am too. Still looking forward to come to a place where it's uh, stable. But right now I see also my uh, day job. It's not really a day job. It's a day and night and thing because I'm a, I'm a tour guide <laughs> and I go on um, vacation with other people, Ooh. but it, it's coming back and in, immediately it's like encroaching on my um, time of just connecting with people and talking with people. So I'm immediately terrified that it's going to take away time from what I, I love doing in my own free time and out of my own volition, right? Even though I love my job, still, there's a difference. <laughs> yeah, because this is a calling, as mine is a calling and a calling is a totally different thing. And how, uh, do you remember when you started noticing this calling? Um, you know, I think after my first film, I was, I was feeling like, wow, um, that was totally incredible. And then in my second film got into a festival and then I was like, wow, I, this is, but I think the calling continues to grow and grow and grow, like even doing podcasts. And t I, I could be afraid. I'm not an expert. I'm not a therapist. I'm just passionate. And I, I had to think to myself, is that okay? Is that enough? And that feels part of the calling to just step out and go, all right, I'm not, I don't have a PhD in folklore, you know, but I do love it. And so I'll, if anybody wants to talk, I'll talk about it. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, that's a, a huge issue for creatives, right? The, the part where you uh, give yourself permission 
because um, nobody's going to give it to you basically unless you're very lucky and they're born to I don't know a couple of parents that just this is what they want us to do is like engage in an activity that promises nothing in terms of in terms of making a living or anything like that so it's it's very very rare and uh, I, I really felt like a crazy person you know deciding to kind of bet on myself and give myself permission to do it and luckily I have a I have a partner who's very supportive of this uh, but that's a huge issue the the giving yourself permission uh, stuff and in that sense like the the I think the pandemic was, you know, I can't say that it was a positive uh, thing that happened for humanity. But if there was something, a way to, to take away from it is maybe uh, the kind of understanding that, hey, you know, strange times call for strange things, which could mean giving yourself permission to do that, these things. It's so trippy to step out on that diving board and take that dive. Um, and, and yeah, nobody, nobody else is saying it's the right thing to do. It just, it's a call. Yeah. Yeah. And how was it? Um, how did you approach, uh, putting your work out there at all in the beginning? What's fantastic right now is short films. I feel like are very, um, they're, they're in vogue, and there's a zillion uh, festivals that would love, I mean, it's financially, I have to be careful because they all cost money to enter, but um, they're looking for films all the time too, and there's streaming services looking for films, so I think it's a good time to be a short filmmaker, and um, so yeah, I'm and, you know, I'm starting to just put my stuff on YouTube, too, to just say, okay, let's see who who's interested. And uh, so, yeah, it feels like it feels like hopefully there will be an audience that finds my work. Yeah, definitely. And I'm super impressed with the way um, you got so quickly to a point where um, the quality of it is is of the quality that, that these people are, are looking for, because I would have so many doubts like coming in and knowing being self-taught or something. It seems like an awfully short time to go from not knowing a lot to being able to have the confidence and show your work to these uh, people. So did you have any kind of method that you use to make sure that you're on par in terms of production quality? It's really fascinating. So I think in the theater, I, you know, my, I have a master's, I was studying for a PhD, I felt some arrogance, but in film, I felt none of that because I wasn't trained. And so that beginner's mind, <laughs> the humility of that really served me. Um, I think my focus, I, I mean, are my production values good? I guess they're good enough. I'm getting into some decent festivals. I always doubt that, but I have been working on storytelling my whole life and story, I think, is the most important part of any project. So I go in with some confidence about that and um, 
And, you know, I've had my experiences of being in a theater and watching my films and going, oh, my God, it's a tough way to learn something, being in a theater with other people, seeing something <laughs> or hearing something you didn't expect. But, um, but I, you know, I think a lot of people feel the love and the heart of my work, and there's a ton of that. So um, I don't know. I... I, I I'm getting more confident because I am getting this recognition. I'll just say that. Yeah, for sure. And was it something that you put emphasis on um, since you treat fairy tales as potential um, objects that can heal us in a sense? Do you find that you make the, the healing aspect more explicit than usual fairy tales? Or, or is it you're trying to... Um, just do whatever comes out and hope that people pick on that? It's a really great question. I think it's been confusing for me. I, I, I want to make a work of art and I want it to be accessible for exploration and all art is. Um, so, you know, I, my my work can be a little complex and move kind of quickly. People tell me they need to watch them multiple times to kind of get. And there's a lot of symbolic layering, maybe. Uh, so I guess I'm trying to do both. Um, I think my next projects are going to be shorter and a series of shorter. And I know people, isn't this awful? We live in a world where 15-minute films are yes. too long. <laughs> yep. thank you for doing a deep dive because i think you know well we need both in our culture you know, it's good to have short little bites too but um yeah so i'm doing both i hope i'm making the last one i just did was um 14 minutes and it was about the um the legends of the search for the Holy Grail, and it was really intense and long, and <laughs> like uh, it almost killed me that piece. Uh, so now I'll do some shorter, shorter ones. I'm also interested in um, the question of how to balance things as an artist between doing something that's didactic because you might have a message to send across and not forcing it down. So it's kind of related to, to my last question, but I always thought like in my work, it was always hard for me because I definitely have messages that I want to make sure getting across. And at the same time, I kind of cringe at the possibility of any um, viewer or listener being able to track down the path in terms of references and so on so that they get into my head it's kind of trippy to think that somebody's going to get into your head and there's something i know at least to me embarrassing about it um is that an issue that you ever think about like the level of of how didactic a thing is or um or it just comes naturally it's not something that's on your mind and i'm just being me Oh, no, it's definitely on my mind, and it's very confusing, and it's been part of my my journey. These dolls, um, I don't make their mouths move, so they're static a lot of the time, 
And I, I think part of my learning curve has been realizing that I have to spell out a lot more than I wanted to, that people weren't getting what I was trying to say. They were missing like the whole point sometimes <laughs> early on. And so if I have a narrator, then I have more control, but not every piece has had that. Uh, it's a delicate balance. And the problem is, if you ask 100 people, I'll get 100 different answers about what it meant or if it was clear or if it was too clear. So in the end, I have to trust myself. Again, we're at that place of nobody else is going to tell me it's right. Mm -hmm. But it's a it's that balance of taking feedback, learning from it, but sometimes going, all right, I can't take that feedback because it's not making sense to me. I have to just trust this. And that's kind of where I'm at these days. And then at, at the end, do you find though that um, in in the responses, you do find a thread that runs through them or are they as varied as, I mean, you did say a hundred people would give, but, but is there a common thread and could it even surprise you sometimes uh, with something that wasn't necessarily on your mind? Um, well, I think in the beginning, a common thread was I wasn't, I wasn't aware of how much I had to spell out. And I wasn't aware of how <laughs> visual, you know, it's a visual medium and I, and the more visual I can do, the better. So, um, every piece, uh, is different, is different. And, uh, so I, th I think I'm learning how to do, how to work in this medium and, um, every piece I ask feedback for, from, I, everybody I send a particular piece to, and they give me feedback. If there is a consistent theme of this isn't understandable, then I'll fix it. Um, I, I'm sorry if I'm not answering your question. No, no. The, yeah, that's it, it. It touches on that in, in the sense that I'm interested to hear if you sometimes find that a lot of people um, have made some connection from, you know, a certain blend of elements in your piece that you haven't really um, thought would make the connection, but it's just kind of surprising. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So I did a piece years ago about, and this was before politics in the U.S. I mean, it's been bad for a while, but uh, I was daydreaming about the U.S. splitting into two different countries. And I, I, I was talking to my husband about it and he would say, you know, it could never happen. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to imagine it. And I made this little piece called The Split about the U.S. splitting into two countries. But the casting I used with the dolls, I have dolls of all different ethnicities, and I like to use a very uh, diverse cast of dolls. And people started seeing the story more about immigration because of the way I cast it. And I and it works that way too. Uh, that was a huge surprise, and multiple people saw it that way. Huh. Yeah, that's really. And by the way, do do you make them yourself, the dolls? 
oh no, I'm not not talented in that way. So luckily there are all sorts of different 11 inch dolls out there, whether they're old GI Joes or Barbies or other kinds of dolls. And then I, I manipulate, sometimes I make their faces with clay or I, I do other things, but I'm, I'm not a talented um, artist in that way. Okay. So they're not, yeah, yeah, <laughs> they're flawed. <laughs> They're flawed, but so are we. So I, I'm okay with yes, that. Yes, this is something we should all come to terms with, um, and it's going to make our lives much better. They're good enough, I would say. This is something that <laughs> I keep um, I keep bringing up in this podcast and in my life to people. It's just we should really focus on, on doing um, good enough things and having good enough things, and it's much healthier than aiming for the, for the perfect um, thing that's out there, right? You've named it, man. You have <laughs> named my spiritual path is, is that humility that comes from doing good enough. Yeah. Yeah. Could you elaborate on that spiritual path? Like I'm interested in that. Well, I mean, I think when we talk about the dolls that I manipulate their faces and it's, it's not slick and it's, I fear, I fear that people will look at it and say, boy, that's really not very good or it's, it looks dumb or whatever. And I do feel like I have to keep going. I, I often feel like, you know, I was in a PhD program. I could have gotten that degree and had this nice ivory tower existence and I didn't want that. I wanted to be more of the artist. And I think um, that means I don't have degrees or other things to hide behind. Um, I'm fully aware of where I'm flawed, I guess, is, is, is what I'm embracing. And that's a very Jungian, you know, and they talk about shadow I'll probably do a, a fairy tale that's focused on the shadow pretty soon because I think it's really important. Yeah, and I in see. the U.S., in the U.S., we keep projecting shadow onto each other. It's such a disaster. Ah, so what? What is that? I'm not fully uh, fluent in the in the language of Jung, but what do you mean when you say people project shadows onto one another? So you know if. If I'm uncomfortable with my aggression, and I don't want to believe I have any aggressiveness in me, I'll focus maybe on somebody who's aggressive and hate them mm. and then attack them for being aggressive. And I think, you know, in the US, such polarization of the left and the right. It's ironic because there are some similarities between the left and the right when they get super radicalized. And that's, I think, the shadow mm -hmm. that yeah. we don't see. I don't see my own radicalness. I don't see my own violence. Mm -hmm. I just see it out there. Right. And is there any aspect of, of that wishing to see um, peace that you think comes into your work? at all or more generally do you have for yourself could you tell yourself what it is that you'd like people to to take away 
from um, looking at your films? Is there a um, grand kind of theme that encompasses everything or that or a, an idea or a concept that you feel um, drawn to explore? Yeah, I mean, I think similar themes I find popping out in my work um, all the time, and they have to do with um, embracing what is, embracing our wholeness, embracing what is natural in in myself, um, making friends with the child within these kinds of themes. Um, Recently, I surprised myself by uh, looking at matriarchy and patriarchy and trying to get back to the mat matriarchal uh, view. That came out in my most recent film. I didn't expect it. And that's not didactic like that, but it's it was like, cool. And um, my current film is is a little more didactic um, on, e on the ecological climate crisis. So I'm I may be moving a little bit toward a little bit more pointed messaging uh, after the mystical. I've been doing some mystical things that the Jungians are going to get, and I don't know if anybody else will. <laughs> the, the David Lynch fans? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe they'll get it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's such a... I'm, I'm, I'm very, very interested in, in this balance between the the dream world where things are really really like extremely open and anybody could come up with their interpretation there's zero messaging clear messaging and and that um yeah so it's 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 thank you for for sharing your insights on it because it's something that I'm always thinking about I'm right now focusing on doing this podcast and it's lucky for me because I'm still learning about all these things. So I'm not engaged in any kind of, in any kind of work that's just put out there like you. Right. And, um, I, I wonder which is, which is harder, I guess to different people, it's going to be different, but to me, it always felt like a, a great big challenge to put something out there. That's that, that's it. It's like not going to, um, change next week or come back in a different form. It should be like this neatly packaged idea. Um, yeah. It's... Yeah. You know, I do have the option and ability to uh, go back and re-edit. <laughs> I have done a little, based do. on learning something, I could do that. <laughs> Uh, but I don't always do that. It becomes sort of a relic of the past. This is the filmmaker I was then, and uh, that's what I did. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Um, yeah, I'm wondering uh, if you if you think that uh, there are any other aspects to kind of illuminate. And I have to say that I, I'm so fascinated with just your work as an artist and, and the artist life that I may have kind of digressed myself from my own <laughs> grand theme of things here, but I'm doing that with, with great fun and just with the understanding that things, sometimes they go uh, down the path you didn't expect. Um, but um, yeah, I'd love to hear from you if there's um, anything else that you find could connect to 
um, the theme of, of living well and something that is related to what you found in your work? Yeah, I think um, these last couple years of working with the fairy tales and reading them and diving into them has made me embrace a more mythical-oriented life. We could say an irrational life because, you know, this modern preoccupation with being rational, I think we lose touch with the imagination and all of its gifts. And so I, I would encourage people, and some people are great at this, and they're, they stay in that world of the imagination. But many of us, um, like fairy tales, like you said earlier, they're, they're for children, and um, we live our lives in a more kind of factual world. And I think if Carl Jung, happy birthday, to, uh, taught me to embrace this mythical um, way of experiencing the world. It's, it's important. We are, we are just the cork floating on the ocean of the great unconscious and allowing ourselves to be moved by what is irrational, confusing, um, is important. Yeah. For, for me, myself, uh, regular listeners of the podcast, uh, already know this by now, but I suffered uh, childhood trauma when my uh, when my mom died just before my eleventh birthday, and part of the the one very healing thing that happened to me was to embrace kind of the myth of the phoenix and see myself as wow. somebody who is who is going to be able to rise from the ashes because that's what I needed to do then, and then it also kind of um, is inoculating you for the future because or inoculating the future because you understand things happen right so then you think it could be cyclical and it's just something that i arrived at by myself so i'm really um i'm really happy to hear from you that this is a thing <laughs> it's a total thing and i'm going to steal your story because your story is such a perfect illustration of how stories work and how it's become a guy, it was guy, it comforted you and guided you. And yes, exactly. That's how yeah. stories work. And, and the, and the, there's always a tension because just as you say, this rational thing, I, I see myself as a very rational person. Um, but this is exactly as you say, this is a story. I know it's a story. I know it's a myth. I know it's loosely based, but then. I also found myself kind of finding pieces. So my initial, the initials of my name in Hebrew, they spell out fire. So that's kind of connected to like the firebird. And then my Whoa. favorite color has always been purple. And purple is uh, phoenix in ancient Greek. So I'm just making these connections to kind of fit the pieces together. And at the end of the day, I know it's irrational, right? It's not about saying that this is true or I'm not deciding anything based on it. But it's just this other really quite strange thing to me because I know it's a story. It is kind of irrational, but I, can, I can't I can for the life of me deny the importance of this story to my well-being. 
Wow. Well, first of all, irrational has got a bad name in our culture, but Jung didn't see it as a bad thing. It's a vital thing. And his whole theory on synchronicities is what's happening to you. Like the inner world and the outer world, we don't understand how it works. We think we understand it all, but there are, well, you know, Horatio or Hamlet, one of them said, you know, there are way things beyond what we could imagine and understand. Your story is giving me goosebumps. That's amazing. Wow. Jung used to always say, what myth are you living? Oh, You're wow. Living so that one. I, I, living I that haven't one. read him. I haven't read him enough. So I only know of him, to be honest. So now I'm, I'm definitely, my curiosity is big. Is there any uh, myth that you feel like you've been living at all or elements, certain elements that you've, that are really dear to you that you keep coming back to? Oh, you know, unfortunately, lately, I've been reading fairy tales that are cautioning me, like the match girl one saying, be careful, <laughs> watch that blind spot. I have some blind spots, whether or not, um, I think I've had, I had a dream about a star that, um, continue and this, yeah, that continues to guide my life. And it was a dream I had 30 years ago. So, um, dreams and fairy tales, I think, are very related. They might have similar origins. Some fairy tales might have come from dreams. But um, no, I don't have anything quite as lovely as what you have. That's quite a, a beautiful, beautiful myth to... Well, yeah. uh, ne necessity is the mother of invention, right? So, Right, yeah, I, it was a tragedy what you had. <laughs> um, but now, now you tell me the story and you remind me of it, and now I embrace it too and think, good. yeah, the phoenix. That, the phoenix is such a wonderful story to, to hold close, especially in this time of our world. Yeah, I mean, we could say, oh, history repeats itself, right? That's kind of like the, the Phoenix thing that we keep saying, but it doesn't, it just lacks the, the kind of emotion that you have in the image of something reintegrating, disintegrating and coming back to life and having a moment of flourishing and being a very powerful thing only to then be reduced to ashes and stuff. So I, I really, really... Um, love this story and i don't know in, in your in your opinion or from the research that you've done do you have any idea how fairy tales come to be is it really just um and i'm not talking about those that can be ascribed to certain individuals but the very ancient ones are they just dreams that are retold from parent to child or um yeah, like how do they come to be, do you think? Um, you know, I think that there were probably individuals that were artists that on an unconscious level were, were sharing stories. At least the Jungians believe that myths, the ancient, ancient myths and fairy tales are describing psychological realities that are really, really deep in us. 
And that's part of the reason why those stories have lasted for thousands of years, because they're archetypal, I guess he would say, that they, they're part of how we're made. Um, yeah, and so they, they hook us that way. And modern science also knows that when, a, when you hear a good story, your brain lights up in a way that's different than anything else you might hear. So stories, we receive a story in a very different way than we receive any other kind of information. Um, so yeah, story, stories are really, really, really powerful. Yeah, and that's I, why in traditional societies, the medicine men or women, the, the healers use stories to heal people. Yeah, to me, it was, um, you know, I, I studied some, I, I studied ancient Greek and so some of it, some of mm. the culture and I, I at first didn't know, you know, you know, there's the Iliad and the Odyssey and these things, but I think many people don't realize the, the beginnings of these things. So we, there was probably no person called Homer, right, who wrote this down, uh, there wasn't, we can say that positively. And rather they were just these um, rhapsodes that would go from uh, city to city, village to village. And the reason behind them being written in metric is because that's how you remember them, right? And these rhapsodes wouldn't, were not writing this. We're talking about over 3,000 years ago. They didn't have a writing system and neither did they need one they would just go around and actually perform um different bits of the iliad the odyssey the iliad and odyssey are probably just compilations of of different things together like strung into this one beautiful more coherent thing in uh, after hundreds of years right but at the beginning they were shorter pieces talking about anger talking about um loyalty and so on. And these rhapsodes would actually be there with the staff, like giving themselves the beat and singing the thing with the metric. And I just really like this image of, of the ancient times before it was kind of put into writing and um, just made immortal. In those times, it was immortalized, but in principle, like it, it could still die with uh, some rhapsode, like getting dementia or getting killed before he passed it on. And I just really like thinking about uh, the very ancient beginnings of these things. I think it adds to the to the art, like the appreciation of the art. For sure, what what I also love about it is all of these arts came out of spiritual rituals. They all came out of a hunger to connect with the divine. And, and yeah, so I think that's the other reason that we had them written in a metric because I think they were part of these ancient mystery cults and ceremonies and uh, Dionysus, the Dionysus being the patron of the theater, this this god where you are dismembered and, and born again, you um, you go into ecstasy, you go into um, altered states. It's right. not 
it's not going for a popcorn movie. It's, it's transformation. Yeah, absolutely. The counterpart um, to Apollo, who is, of course, like logic, order, right? And just going into a Dionysian state. That's still a, a thing we say. And yeah, in, in, in actually, the, the connection with, with God and, and the divine is made explicitly by ancient writers because to them, they understood the metric and the rhymes at some point, people were so impressed with the level that they said, this is how the gods speak, right? And it gave um, rhapsodes and poets a, a, a very high social standing. Like They were very powerful because they were seen as people who could, um, who could um, anoint kings, but also take them down if they wanted. If they wanted to write some sort of scathing poem that's, amazingly presented with the right rhyme and metric. So it's very interesting how um, they were held in very high regard in those times. Yeah, and the irrational is held in high regard. And, and I also just love that if you're in Japan or in Bali or in India, those are just places I've studied. Same thing was happening in terms of the ancient a uh, connection between art, performance, and uh, ritual, spiritual seeking. It's all the same. I mean, very different looking art, but uh, similar coming out of ritual. Yeah, lovely. So I think, um, I think the last question I'd love to ask you, because I noticed that you're very much concerned with the state of the society that, that you live in. And I'd say if, if it's a more, um, really the state of the world and noticing things like polarization and conflict, um, what would you suggest that, uh, what fairy tale would you prescribe to, to our society in these days? <laughs> oh my gosh what fairy tale would i prescribe one that we should as a society really re-examine and understand something that would is is likely to cause us to once again kind of uh make peace what a fantastic question so let me answer it in a couple different ways one is both Jung and Joseph Campbell talk about how we need a new myth. And they both talked about how, um, I mean, uh, the, the struggle over Christianity in the U.S. and sort of the right wing and the left, um, it, it's because there is a lack of myth in our culture. Either people are taking it literally as the Christian fundamentalists do, or the secular people say there is nothing. But we can't live without myth. So we're in between, it feels like a living myth. Um, where will it come from? It will come from the artists, but has it come yet? I don't know. Um, but my next big project may be a series of very short fairy tales um, that were told by the socialists in Britain hmm. in the 1800s. Beginning of the Industrial Revolution, they're hoping for 
you know, to teach their children and adults to uh, seek the higher good. And so that might be my next um, project. For instance, one of these fairy tales are a bunch of chickens who are debating how should they get cooked? What sauce should they be cooked in? Instead of questioning, should they be cooked? So um, this kind of, it's a little didactic, but also I think maybe we need some thinking in this way um, to be thoughtful and not to be a sheep, to change the animal metaphor. Yeah, absolutely. In in the case of the of the American dream, I I do think there is the American dream, right? Or the the American myth. And my take on it is that when it started with the discovery of America by Columbus, discovery I'm saying for the Europeans, not to um, not to say that it wasn't discovered yeah. by the people living in it, um, right. but you know there was a mindset of like, oh, there's if resources are just kind of running out, we could always move farther out west, right? And then it reached there, and that's kind of um, an ossified thing, an ossified myth, right, of just unlimited resources. I think that once the U.S. with its uh, mindset of just there's always more, that's kind of what it went out into the world and set out to dominate a lot of other places through economic... um, yeah, like covert economic warfare almost. And I think that today, uh, first of all, we get the internet that really makes it hard to keep people in the dark about the circumstances in which they live in. So there's just this general uh, enlightenment of among people to the to the situation they're in, and it's kind of harder to um, to trick them into being your subordinate or something. And also uh, climate change, you know, understanding that there are consequences to burning so many, so much fossil fuels and so on. And at least in America, and I have, I have American citizenship, so please don't think I'm just this outsider who's preaching. Um, but I think it's, um, th- this is, what needs to be replaced like but first recognizing that the american dream was a myth and it was always sort of irrational but maybe not of the good kind (laughs) yeah um well said i I, i've been reading a psychologist from I think he was writing more in the 60s and the 70s rollo may i love him he saved my life did he yeah well, he wrote about Horatio Alger and that specific American myth. He's also written about um, the myth of individual individualism and how much that's hurting mm-hmm. our culture. And he has a great book called The Cry for Myth. So, yeah, I like him too a lot. Yeah, he was, he was one of those people whose uh, writings I, I really held on to in difficult times. So he, uh, Viktor Frankl, Kurt Vonnegut, for sure, like all heroes to me, um, and some Buddhist writings. Viktor Frankl, for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, Laura, well, this has been uh, amazing. And as I as I said, this was totally serendipitous, like this whole conversation. I'm so happy that this is how it, it turned out. And, um, 
and really happy to go these places with you. Uh, before we part ways, I'd love to hear from you if you want to share with listeners where your work could be found and anything else that, that you might want to share. Thank you. Uh, well, one easy place to find all my social media and links to my films is lauralewisbarfilms.com. So L-A-U-R-A-L-E-W-I-S-B-A-R-R, lauralewisfilms.com. Uh, I go under Psyche Cinema on YouTube. Nice. Psyche Cinema. Yeah. So there's a lot of the um, mystique there, I guess, in that name. That's good. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Laura, thanks so much. It's been a, a great pleasure and uh, good luck with everything. Good luck to all aspiring artists. May we all uh, make it like you. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah.